everything's safe and you shouldn't feel scared about buying food or eating food because some group puts out a stupid list every spring. Good morning, everyone. I'm Harley and I'm your host, and this is The Ranch Collective. If you're new here, welcome. If you are a regular listener, welcome back. Today's guest is Ali Kelly, who is actually one of the first people I met and felt connected to when I made my podcast social media. For the last almost two years, she's been someone who I can count on to be honest, vulnerable, and provide trustworthy information. She also is someone who laughs at my most perverted jokes and never fails to make me laugh in return. I am so excited to share this conversation with you all, my friend, and it has just been so much fun. Uh, We are chatting all about how Allie got to where she is now and how it was a long time coming, and I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Hey, you guys. Before we hop into the episode today, I'm going to take a quick break so I can tell you more about the other business under our company umbrella, Polish Company. Josiah and I run a photo business where we focus on Western weddings and business content shoots, but we also sell prints of our land and ranchscapes. Have you ever been hiking, camping, or even just looking around your home? You look at a view, think, wow, I wish I had a photo that could do that justice. Us too, all the time. That's why we share our Western prints. Currently, we're offering three of our favorite prints, Barbed, which is a barbed wire fence in Washoe Valley in northern Nevada, featuring a snow-capped Mount Rose in the background, Green, which is the tassels and leaves of a cornstalk bathed in the Texas sunlight, and finally, Take Life by the Horns, which features a horned bull from the Brinkman Ranch in Fresco, Texas, gazing at the camera. All of the prints are available either as a standard print, think like wall art that you'd frame, which features a deep matte surface, rich colors, pure whites, or a metal print on a brushed aluminum box that really showcases natural colors and metal textures. They're available in 12 by 18 or 20 by 24 inches. To see more information or to purchase a print, you can find the direct links in the show notes for this episode, or you can search Polish Company on Etsy. To check out other products and services offered by our business, you can find us on Instagram or Facebook under Polish Company. That's P-O-L-I-C-H Company. I am Allie Kelly. I um, am an ag-focused entrepreneur. So I think that's the easiest way to describe myself. <laughs> Just have a few irons in the fire. So uh, my education and background is in agriculture, even though I didn't grow up on a farm. Um, and so I have a bachelor's in animal dairy and vet science. I focused on biotechnology, so I worked in molecular cloning labs during my undergraduate degree, and that is exactly what it sounds like, cloning things, <laughs> and it was really fun. Um, and then my master's is in ruminant nutrition. I did it um, on a dairy, on the school dairy. And after that, I or during that, I kind of became really passionate about connecting consumers to agriculture because I was once a clueless consumer. And so I decided to make that my career for a few different reasons and quickly found out how easy it is to fail at being an entrepreneur. (laughs) So I pivoted a lot. And over the course of a few years, I've built up um, a food blog, a successful food blog that earns an income. And then I've diversified into a few other areas um, with some courses. And then I just launched some consulting based based on some requests that I've gotten lately from people. I have, let's see, we bought our first small farm. I've only done small, I've only lived on small farms, um, but I've, you know, worked and done projects on bigger farms. 
but myself, we bought our first five acres, like I think the year I started my master's degree, looking back, that probably was a stupid idea, but Hey, it's me. So, um, I've renovated and rehabbed. This is my, we're on our third, um, farmstead property that was basically just trashed home and land. And so that's become kind of a side passion project too, is restoring these small acreage properties, because usually they're the ones that get trashed just because people buy them and don't know what to do with them. So there is a rambling introduction to Allie. Yes. Welcome. I am so, so excited to have you on. I was telling somebody the other day, I was like, there's like a group of people who I talk to all the time, like not more than like two or three days go by without me talking to them. And you're one of those people who's coming on. I've got a couple other friends of mine who are coming on and y'all are people who I was like most scared to reach out to and be like, you want to come on the show? I was like, Oh, stop it. (laughs) I was like so scared to ask because it's one thing if you go talk to a stranger and ask them and they're like, no, but it's another thing. If I go to you, I'm like, Allie's my friend. I can ask her. And then what if she says no? I would never say no, (laughs) ever. Just know that like, this is just a general rule of thumb for everybody. If you're feeling awkward, like about anything you feel like you want to slash need to say to me, I guarantee you, I've felt 10 times more awkward thinking about like saying something along the lines of like, we're friends, right? (laughs) So don't ever be worried. I'm, I, I'm the most awkward always. So everybody can just not be worried around me. (laughs) Well, it's, it's nice to like, it's nice to finally have you on. I'm so excited to talk to you because I've for about like a year I've been like just ask just ask and then I'm too scared so (laughs) I'm glad I think I commented on your post and I was like I was feeling like what if she doesn't want me on (laughs) so we were both in our heads about it yes well I posted that and um Andrea commented on it tagged like four people on it and then texted me was like can I come on your show we're all just feeling the same way. <laughs> yeah. She was like, I'm kind of offended. You haven't brought me on her. Oh, shoot. <laughs> I was like, well, I was scared too. She was the other person who I was recording with her uh, last week. And she was like, well, you should have known. I would want to come on. <laughs> okay, I can love you. <laughs> but okay. I have, um, I want to know more about this cloning because uh, something that's come up uh, fairly recently has been this, um, idea of using cloned beef or other meat or genetically engineered meat instead of raising, um, animals. And I, since you have a little bit more than like the average person's experience, um, in kind of that field, I would love to know your thoughts about it. Yeah, for sure. So, um, let me start out by saying, I worked in this lab. It was like seven years ago. So, so the science could be different. So in my experience, um, what we did a lot of, there were two things we did a lot of. So the first thing that was a lot of the research was creating animal models for human disease. And so what that means is, um, I'm trying to think of an example. Okay. So they had some goats and they would um, clone an AFib 
the a like a uh, afib disease in humans they would clone that into the genes of the goat and then there would be goats born with afib the clones would be born with afib and then you could study it and for anybody freaks out um every cloned animal i worked with and every like animal that was carrying a clone was so well cared for like yes they had afib and that is you know a disease and they were studied, but they were well taken care of. There's a lot of protocols in place to make sure that they're, um, you know, like ethic ethically that they're being cared for responsibly. So I never had any um, qualms about that. If you do, if you're li listening and you do, that's totally fine. Um, but it's just something to think about. Something to think about when you're thinking of using an animal model for human disease is like we can get really far in studying things without, uh, you know, live models, but at some point we do need live models. And the reason that animals work well is because you can't, can't test these things on humans. That's really unethical. Um, but you can test like treatments on animals and it, it, they're not going to make the animal worse. They're going to help it get better. So we can get really, really far, but at some point we do need to test on live animals because at the end of the day, people also get a little upset when I say this, um, a human life is worth more than an animal life. And I think that's what get, gets me the most with all these like activist organizations is they're saying they care so much about the value of a life. And yet some of the things they say to actual humans are just astoundingly terrible. Like I, I can't even repeat some of them. They're just so awful. And, and if you care about life that much, how could you say that to another human being? So anyway, that's my little spiel on that. The other thing that we did a lot with cloning is <laughs> we cloned rodeo stock. Um, I never signed an NDA. I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about this, but, um, we, we had, won't get like, we won't get super, super into like the nitty gritty. Details yeah. I won't, stuff. I won't say any names, but rodeo stock was another thing that we did. Um, just because they would, they were willing to fund the research and it was a good way to like practice basically cloning. Uh, the thing with that, that people also need to understand is like personality is not clonable. So you can have all the genes in the world that are perfect, but at the end of the day, if you clone a bull that doesn't want to buck, he's not going to buck. <laughs> so genes are only part of that equation. Um, so when I think of cloned meat, or however you want to say that, lab-produced meat, I just think of all the inputs you would need, like supply-wise, number one, and then number two, my brain goes to like manpower um, to, you know, do everything that, that it would take and then, and then time, right? And I feel like, I feel like the U.S. beef, live animal beef production system is just so efficient that when, at least when I was doing cloning, there were so many inefficiencies just because it was a process that to a point was repeatable, but also sometimes it just wouldn't work. And, and there wasn't like a very clear um, reason why, again, this was a few years ago, so things could have changed. But in my mind, 
I feel like that would be trading all of this like efficiency and expertise for kind of an unknown. Does that make sense? So like, I feel like, I feel like there's so much unknown with lab produced meat. And then also we don't know, like we know the methane cycle in cattle. We know how they impact the environment. We have years of data on that, you know, whether they're in the sand hills or whether they're in, the, in a feedlot or whether they're finished on grass. Like we have so much data. And then a lot of times these new things like lab clone meat, sure on paper, it looks good, but you don't have any data. You don't have any data for doing it. You don't have any data for what happens afterward, for the efficiency afterward, for the environmental impact afterward. You don't have any data, um, you know, for impact on health afterward. Like, as far as I'm concerned, nothing will replace real beef just because we have so much data and so much of it is positive. There's always room for improvement, no doubt, for sure. And we're always going to learn stuff, no doubt. I'm a researcher, scientist at heart. Like, of course, there's things we don't know. But at the end of the day, it just feels like, why would we take all of these knowns and just completely trade them for something that's almost totally unknown at this point? Yeah, there, that is a lot of like really good information. And that echoes other, um, unrecorded, I guess, conversations that I've had, um, with other individuals about it and that, and that, um, particularly it'll put a lot of people who work really, really hard. It'll take away their entire livelihood. And then what for them? Well, and, and then we, and then if we get into that, that's a great point. If we get into the people side of this, um, if we just look around, there's labor shortages everywhere where I live. And uh, we moved last year and there were labor shortages where we moved from to get enough people. Like you can get people to come work in almost any aspect of the beef industry, not every aspect, but a lot of aspects you can get somebody who has no skills or knowledge and teach them what they need to know in a relatively short amount of time, if they have the right, um, like mentor or, you know, person with them, showing them what to do to get that many people like that are lab skilled, able to do that process to produce beef on the scale that we now produce beef. To me, that just seems impossible. Like, yes. And, and I don't know that there would be people who want to do that, you know? Yeah. And certainly not to demean the people who are raising beef because it is, it is hard. Right. But there's like, I think in, in the ag discussion room on clubhouse the other day, we were talking about like $15 jobs versus hundred, hundred, $15 an hour jobs versus hundred dollar an hour jobs. You can like hire out as many $15 an hour jobs as you know, you want where it's basically like fixing fence or always like checking wires or like whatever those like easy jobs that can be taught to anyone with a brain versus like a hundred, the hundred dollar an hour jobs, which is like the specialty job. So like the animal nutrition, like, like you like animal nutrition and stuff like that, um, needs a lot more specialty. And I would imagine probably the cloning of beet or genetically modified or whatever the correct correct term is for it. Um, those are all hundred dollar an hour jobs and they're specialty jobs. They're not just like, 
I can't walk in off the street and say, teach me how to do this. And yeah. Yes. <laughs> and thank you for clarifying that with the beef industry. Yes. Like there's, it, it definitely takes like learning and skill, but it's at least in my experience, teaching people how to work in a lab. It was a lot easier to teach people how to work on the farm <laughs> than it was to teach them how to work on a lab. Just, just because I, I don't even, I don't even know why, but that was my experience. I have done both. And you also just, you have to have like so many years of education if you're going to work in a lab. And again, I, I don't know, that just seems like a big obstacle in this cloned beef um, story that people want to make. I've been like dying to talk to someone about it. Maybe I need to look into like someone who really knows a ton about it and have them come on and talk about it. <laughs> yeah, you should. That'd be interesting. Yes. Okay. So let's go into your rewind just like for a hot sec. So you said you did not grow up um, on a farm. Did you grow up in the industry at all or? <laughs> nope. So I grew up um, in the suburbs. My dad uh, is, was, is, was, um, a professor slash entrepreneur. He did a whole bunch of things. My mom, um, was a hairdresser at one point and mostly stayed at home during my whole childhood. And nobody, even in my extended family had any connection to the ag industry at all. So I just was born with this love of like wide open spaces and animals. And I started begging to ride horses when I was in kindergarten. And my mom finally gave in when I was in second grade. And that was something that I had to like kind of fight really hard to keep doing as a kid. And for some reason it, it was just in my soul. And so I was that weird horse, crazy girl that we all know. And <laughs> probably some of us ridiculed. <laughs> Okay, this, is, this is giving me flashbacks because I feel like we've had the horse girl conversation before. <laughs> I feel like we've talked about how you were kind of the weird horse girl before. I, I think I talked about it on um, Kaya. Do you know Coach Kaya? Uh, yeah. I talked about it on her podcast. <laughs> you know, the girl who's like playing horses at recess and anyway, the whole thing. So I did that all through high school. Um, I started working at the barn when I was 14 my parents said, we'll buy you a horse. And I didn't live in a place where I could have a horse. So we'll buy you a horse and we'll pay for board and the rest is up to you. So I started working as soon as I could to pay for all the horse things like lessons, shoes, vet care, tack, clothing, all that was me. And then when I was 16, that's actually when I started my first business, I had been cleaning stalls at the barn and then they hired, um, kind of like a full-time, uh, I don't, I don't know his job title, but he like cleaned stalls and fed and like, man, kind of like a manager. And so I was like, well, shoot, I don't want to like go get an hourly job because then I can't be at the barn. And so, um, I rode at this barn that was, uh, pretty close to like a resort town. And so the, a lot of the boarders at the barn had extra money. And so I just started, asking them if they wanted me to do stuff, clean their tech, run to the feed store, um, warm up their horse for them, tack up the, their horse for them, cool down, you know, all the things. 
And so I did that. I did a bunch of just like kind of errand girl jobs <laughs> for these wonderful, wonderful people who paid me to do it. I'm so grateful to them because they kind of let me live out my dreams by hiring me to do all these random things. And then I would just exercise ride any horse that I could sit on. So um, by the time I graduated, I was exercise riding horses at three different barns across two different counties. Um, one of them was a therapeutic riding center. I was in charge of keeping the horses kind of like, you know how lesson horses just get a little like crabby sometimes. Yeah. So just kind of keeping them tuned up. And then I would, I would give lessons to the instructors. So I would help them ride better. And then I would help them understand how to teach better. And we did, me and a friend did some pony camps. I was just all about the horse stuff. And then when I went to college, I was like, I'm going to be, you know, the fanciest vet <laughs> that ever walked the earth. <laughs> and then I had to take ag classes because pre, my pre-vet, I was pre-vet track for a year. And then I switched to biotech emphasis because I had to take a bunch of ag classes. And as I was taking ag classes, like, um, intro to animal science was a trip. I was the idiot in class Googling, like how many cattle are ahead of, what is ahead of cattle? What does coal mean? Like that was me literally Googling everything. Like what's a fresh cow? What's colostrum? <laughs> I had no clue. Um, but through that, I really gained, I really gained an appreciation for farming and ranching and agriculture in general. And by the time I was a senior, I took beef management was when I was a senior. And I was like, I love the ranching lifestyle. That's like, if I could ranch, that's where I wanted, that's where I want to be. And then that's, that class was where I got really passionate about telling the story of agriculture, because I realized we had, we had a bunch of different presenters come into that class from all different aspects of the beef industry and their overarching concern was consumer perception of them and how they were doing their job and how it impacted their job. And they didn't know what to do about it because like at this point, Instagram wasn't a thing or it was like barely a thing. And I mean, there was like Facebook and it, it just wasn't like it, doing what we do now online with agriculture, like wasn't a thing and it, it didn't exist. And so that's why I kind of wanted to make that my job. And that's where that, that's kind of how I got here, I guess. When you say like you help connect consumers to ag or help um, producers connect to their consumers, how do you do that? Do you, do you, I know, you, well, I know you do a lot of it like via Instagram, you share a lot, you educate a lot, but like, how do you get consumers actually interested in connecting with producers? So this is a great question. And I feel like this has evolved for me over the, I don't even know how many years it's been like eight or nine. Oh my gosh. I'm so old. Um, <laughs> this has evolved because when I first started, I was like, educate, educate, educate. Like I just need to tell people. And then they'll be like, oh my gosh, this is great. That's not how it works. Um, and I spent a really long time learning about communication. So reading books, um, taking classes, doing therapy work. Like I've spent over a decade studying effective communication and agriculture advocacy kind of 
at one point there was a lot of people doing this educating. So kind of posting on their platforms, all of this basically like slides, like educational material. And that's great. But as I've kind of watched how social media has shifted and how people prefer to get their information. And just as social media has evolved and we kind of understand it a little better, a little bit better now than we did before, I've changed my tune a little bit. And I think now the best way to advocate is to show up online as you. Don't come online with an agenda to advocate. Come online with an agenda to share yourself and connect with people who want to connect with you. Because a lot of times I feel like when we are quote unquote educating, we're kind of just shouting into an echo chamber. Who's sharing our posts? Other producers. Great. But like, is that reaching who we want it to reach? No. Um, Like who's commenting on our posts? Other producers. Great. I love supporting my fellow ag people, but at the end of the day, is that the point? So as I've been asking myself that question, I've been thinking, why, like, why do I follow people on social media? Why do I buy products from certain people I follow on social media? It's because I connect with them somehow. And usually they're not like me. Usually they're very different from me. Um, like the example that's coming to mind right now is, uh, do you know who Jonathan Van Ness is? He's one of the Queer Eye um, individuals. He's, sorry, they are fantastic. And um, I buy hair products from that hair product brand. And it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm like, they're not involved in agriculture at all, obviously. But I really like, I really connect with the way that they communicate. And I really connect with the way that they treat people, you know, if you watch their show. And so by watching the show, I've come to know, like, and trust Jonathan Van Ness, and now I buy the hair products. So my point is you can like talk to the people you need to talk to, or you're wanting to talk to, not by just shouting facts. I think the way that, that we communicate with consumers is by sharing ourselves. So yes, you're a rancher. Let's say you also really like pottery and you make pots. Share that. Let me so many people that connect with you about that or quilting or woodworking or whatever hobby you have. Share your whole self and then that's how you're going to connect with people. Because if we just continue to shout facts, the only people who are going to be in the room is other ag people, which is great. We can support each other, but is that the point? Right. And I know for like a lot of the advocates that I interact with online, sometimes they, and they voice this to me, I'm not just speaking for them, but they voice like, it does feel like I'm yelling into a void. Like they're like, oh, I'll see fellow ag people sharing, but like, uh, except with the exception of like, people just like trolling hashtags. So like you get animal activists, vegans, et cetera, that come in and will comment hateful, nasty things on people's posts or like, it's only reaching those two groups, right? It's reaching my echo chamber. And then um, people that would like talking to. Yeah. So 
it's hard. I think sometimes, especially when you're like with the way a lot of the algorithms run, it's hard. I don't know, but TikTok's algorithm is like on point. It is hard. And yeah, TikTok is like my new favorite place. I love TikTok. My salty side lives on TikTok and it's Mm -hmm. honestly so great. (laughs) I love it. But yeah, I think at the end of the day, if you're an advocate and you're asking yourself, is this reaching the right people and you don't feel like it is, maybe just try a little bit and connect with people over something else. Why I started the food blog was because I needed a way to reach people. And my thought was, well, everybody likes food, right? And there are people who like food blogs and food is obviously directly related to If I can get them to trust me with the recipe, maybe they'll trust me with a question that matters. So like a couple of days ago, I talked about the dirty dozen on my Instagram. And the only reason I did that is because I asked my audience if they wanted me to, because I saw a few posts about it. So I knew that it was, you know, making the rounds on or wherever people are sharing it. And so I asked, do you want me to talk about this? And the majority of people said yes. And so I did. If the majority of people had said no, I wouldn't have, because at the end of the day, I'm talking to my audience and I need to talk to them about the things they want to learn about. And if they're not ready to trust me with something, then I can wait until they are. Can you um, explain what that is really quick? I know you made, said you made posts about it, but I would love for you to explain oh. that as well. But- yeah, the dirty, the dirty dozen. Yeah. yeah. So the dirty dozen is a list put out by the environmental working group, EWG. Um, and that group is very questionable. It's not reputable. Um, if you dig into, you know, who's behind it and what their dollars mean. Um, and it basically is a list of, I think, 15 fruits and vegetables that you should quote unquote avoid because of the pesticide residue and how high it is. That's BS for a lot of reasons, but like really high overview is it's BS because you would have to eat literally thousands of servings of each of those things to have a negative impact, like in one sitting. Okay. Also question. Yeah. If you wash your produce before you eat it, wouldn't it take care of that anyways? Correct. So, um, <laughs> wash the your- US, yeah, like the USDA every year tests samples of produce, fruits and vegetables for, um, I forget the term, but basically like the level of pesticide residue and they have a benchmark number every year, 99%. So almost all the fruits and vegetables are well below the benchmark number. So that means there's less residue than is required. Right. And, um, 40% don't even have residue. So if you're worried about it, pesticides are water soluble and pesticides and herbicides are water soluble. So like you said, if you just want fruits and veggies, which you should anyway, because hello outside gross <laughs> bird poop is the always what comes to my mind. <laughs> Wash them uh, with water. If you want to use a little cleaner, you know, that's proved for fruits and vegetables. That's cool too up to you, but just wash them and you'll be to go because 
everything's safe and you shouldn't feel scared about buying food or eating food because some group puts out a stupid list every spring. Yeah. Um, I have a lot to say on that particular subject. Um, that's for another time. Okay. <laughs> um, can you share a little bit about like how from when you went to college and discovered your love of ag kind of, um, walk us through how you got to where you are now. So when I first decided to try my hand at being an entrepreneur in the ag space, I built this website. I knew nothing about websites. Uh, I I knew nothing, zero things. So I built this website. It took a long time. I feel like I earned a secondary degree, learning all the stuff I needed to learn for a website. And I put my website out there. And then I kind of had this moment of like, oh, now what? Like, how do I make money. Cause it was like for consulting, like equine nutrition, I think. Um, yeah. And I was like, well, now what do I do? And at that point I had a lot of, you know, imposter syndrome and I wasn't super confident in calling myself a consultant. And so I didn't, you know, market as much as I should have. And I decided, okay, I don't think this is for me because I don't like selling things. And I especially don't like trying to sell my own services. So what else could I do? So then I found food blogging, but you know, there was like a year and a half of that time. And I I worked part-time for like a pet supplement company during this whole journey. And so I had that kind of part-time job. And then I decided to kind of transition into this food blogging. And at the time food blogging was not new, but not like it is now. And so there was a little bit of information, not a ton. And I tried to figure out what I could find. And I wanted to do like homesteading food blogging stuff. So again, we go on this journey for like a year of me trying to stumble through, figure it out, try to learn how to do this and how to get people to my site and all of the steps that it takes to actually get somebody on your site and then make money from them being on your site. So that was like a whole nother year and a half. And at this point, um, I'd had two kids. And so my, my daughter was my, she's my second. And I was really struggling with postpartum depression and anxiety. And when you're in it, you like, don't realize that that's what you're struggling with, which sounds ridiculous, but it's true. Like you're just kind of in this like hole with blinders on, or at least that's how I felt. And I didn't even know that that's what was happening because the stupid questionnaire they give you at the hospital, like did not apply to me. Like none of my symptoms matched that. And so fellow moms, if you're like super pissy and angry, that can be a sign (laughs) of depression and anxiety. I wasn't sad. I was just real mad. So Um, I kind of went through this summer of like feeling like I wasn't getting anywhere with my business and feeling just basically overwhelmed with life and like a failure. And like, I didn't know what I was doing because I hadn't worked in industry. And then I had these two kids and then I thought I was failing at my business. And what do I do from here? I don't, it never felt like I wanted to be a stay at home mom, which I have nothing against that, but that's just wasn't what I felt like I wanted to do. And so I felt like I'd kind of put myself in this box. And so it was 
January and I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. (laughs) And so I thought, okay, I already have this website. I already have some content on it. I'm just going to dig in and figure out how to make money food blogging. And I needed some money to invest into my food blog for a few different things. Um, And then I also was like, okay, I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to build a big ass garden and sell CSA shares because I really want a big garden and I can't pay for one right now. I don't have any money to pay for that. I don't have any money to even like, at that point, it was like a struggle to buy groceries. And so I was like, if I'm going to do this, I need to like find money. And so, um, I started planning my garden. I, I had a, I had a pad of graph paper left over from, from grad school. And I got that out and I had a spot already that I knew where I wanted it to be. And I mapped out my garden and I made spreadsheets of like what plants I would need to plant and how much they would grow and produce and, and how much of that I needed to put in a share and then how much I could sell the shares for and like all of that infrastructure. And then at the same time, I took, um, I have a master's degree at this point. Okay. I took a night shift at the local tack and feed store as a cashier (laughs) and everybody, it's a small town. You see people, you know, and they're just like, what are you doing? Like, yeah. Why are you here? Why are you working this job? You know? And, and I had this like dream and I had decided that I was going to commit to it. And if you're in that phase of like, you have the dream and you're committed to doing whatever crazy thing it takes to get you there, there's going to be people who come through your checkout line and ask you what the hell you're doing. And most of the time you're going to be like, dude, I don't know. (laughs) You're going to feel like you don't know what you're doing, but you do because you have that end goal. So fast forward, like six months, um, or actually fast forward two months, I figured out I could teach English online to children in China through a reputable company at at between the hours of 3 a.m. and 6.30 a.m. And so I quit the feed store and started doing that because I earned double. I could earn double teaching children English um, just because I had a master's degree. Like it didn't even have to be in anything related to teaching. And Um, you had to like audition though. And so I put a ton of time and effort into that, got that job. And then I taught English from 3am to 6am for months until my blog income from ads paid me more than my teaching income paid me. And so that happened around the same time as my CSA was wrapping up. I had a super great summer. I built that 25 box CSA garden with (laughs) a huge pumpkin patch, enough food for 10 to 12 families. I built that in two months um, and paid for it with like people bought shares and I used that money to pay for it. That's risky. And then a credit card. (laughs) Okay. There is like so many things (laughs) that you just said where I'm just like, we could do a whole entire episode about like, this 
Yeah. I'm really, truly. So sometimes I wish I did release video from these episodes because I wish everyone could just see my face as you're t- telling me all of this. <laughs> yeah. So you can, uh, you, I mean, you can ask whatever you want to ask. It, well, you know. I, I mean, I don't want to spend too much, too much time going into it, but like it, I think it's really, really hard for people to realize like, you're like, okay, well, your dreams are up here and you're down here. Sometimes you got to do like, if you're, you have to do whatever it takes. If that means working at a feed store or a tax store at 2 a.m. Or that means teaching Chinese at 3 a.m. Like those are the things that people mean when they say you have to do whatever it takes. Yes. And those are the things that when you look at my website or my social media accounts or my position in life now, you don't see that. But when I tell you that getting my business, and I don't even feel like I'm that successful now with my business. Like I make a okay full-time income, but like, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm the most successful person out there. Right. You're not Jeff Bezos. (laughs) Unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, maybe fortunately. Um, <laughs> so when you see like what I have now, and because people ask me this too all the time, like, how did you buy the farm you have now? Especially because the markets are so crazy. I'm like, you don't see the hours I spent at that first property picking up wire and old fence. You don't see how many nights I moved gravel till 10 p.m. until my muscles shook to build that garden, to pay, to improve that space. You don't see all the work that went into making that. It was a double wide trailer on that property. We lived in a double wide trailer from 1972 or something. You don't see the hours that went into making that place livable, like not even nice, livable. Like you don't see how stressful and anxiety ridden I was because we couldn't figure out how to get the mice to stop coming in. And I had two babies. Like you don't see that. You don't see the late nights. Once I didn't have to teach English anymore, you don't see the late nights of me working after I put my kids to bed from 7 PM till 2 AM for years. I still do that. Like people don't see that. And then when we sold that property, we decided to sell that property. Um, Like at this point, I've made over half a million dollars from rehabbing these old properties, which sounds great. But like (laughs) in in property money, that's, I want to say that's not that much because it's like a a chunk of change. But like when you're talking about rehabbing properties and making money off of them, that's not a lot. (laughs) Yeah. So like we sold our first farm and we made $130,000, which was awesome. Yeah. We bought the second property and, um, cause it was there, there was like nothing we wanted. And so that, that was like, well, this house is fine. And I know I can make money on it when we sell it. And so that's what we did. And we made, um, like $200,000 when we sold that one, which was great. And then we bought this one and people always are like, cause we're doing an entire home renovation and they're like, how are you paying for this? How are you paying for this? I'm like, well, because we have made smart property investments for a decade. Yeah, That's how like nobody, this 
renovating a seven acre farm and 3000 square foot farmhouse doesn't happen because you just decided you wanted it to. This is a decade in the making. And so I need you, I need everybody to know (laughs) if you have a goal, if you have a dream that seems like it's so far away, it might be, but that doesn't mean you can't work towards it because as you work towards it, you're going to find it's your goal is out there and the path is like, you can't see it. You can't see the path, but you just have to take one step at a time in that general direction and you will get there. I promise, which I know sounds like shit (laughs) when, (laughs) when you're in it, it sounds terrible to hear somebody say that, but it's true because you read all these articles online and you find articles on Pinterest. That's like how I made $5,000 in one night. They didn't, they didn't, right. They had infrastructure. They had experience. They had time that they had invested beforehand. So you are not going to be an overnight success. Yeah. I think that's one of the bigger issues that like we, not just like you and I, but like kind of everybody sees, um, especially on social media is that we see all these big successes, right? So you said you get asked all the time, right? So people are only seeing the success that you have right now, but they're not watching you spend all these hours. Even right now you're painting the outside of of your house yourself. They're not like with you when, you know, you and your spouse get into it because you're both just tired and you just both want to go to bed, but you have so much other shit you have to get done. I'm like, they don't see all of those other things because no, you don't want to put that shit on social media. No one needs, no one needs to see that, but it's all there. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, and, and I'm too, like people (laughs) think that they know everything about my life or me because I share on social media. I share probably 10% of my life on social media. So I know everybody knows this, but I really need people to know that when you see somebody succeeding, they have years of work behind them. They have so much that they're not sharing, not because they don't want to, but just because they don't have to. I'm not obligated to share everything all the time, right? But it's worth it. And the journey to like get where I am is nothing like I thought it would be. <laughs> And I'm not even in a spot I thought I would be in, but I'm okay with that because I'm really, I'm really excited about the things I'm doing and, and where I'm at now. So if you're just starting out, try to just focus on one step at a time. I think that's really good advice because it's so easy. So I turn 29 later this year. And I, there's a whole bunch of things that I thought that I would accomplish before turning 30 that realistically, like in the next year and a half, I'm probably not going to accomplish. Right. So there's all of these things that I thought that I would do or have, or get done before turning 30 and never, ever once I imagined that I would be (laughs) in a one bedroom apartment in the middle of Austin, Texas, um, having been, you know, engaged for five years. Not to say I don't love my life because I do. There's lots about it that I do love but it just didn't turn out the way that I imagined that it would (laughs) right there with you, right there with you. And yeah, it's, and I think there's a lot of too, like, I just want to tell everybody, like, if you are feeling rushed 
I feel like, I don't know, at least when I was like a young adult teenager, there was so much like, what are you going to be when you grow up? What are you going to do? What's your major? Can we all just cool it? Mm -hmm. Like, just take a real deep breath. You don't need to know your major. You can take some time. And guess what? If college isn't for you, that's cool. There are, I just, I could tell you exactly how much I just paid my contractor (laughs) to do my, like there, my husband has a trade. My husband is a mechanic. He, He is a trade degree. I have a, I have a graduate degree. There is no, um, difference between our potential for earning right well because of the internet it was a real eye-opener for me because I was always told like you have to go to college like you have to do you have to do x y and z and now my partner somebody he graduated from high school but like that's as far as his formal education goes like that is it and he significantly out earned me because he busts his ass and he works really really hard to become like specialized in his field but like doesn't have additional formal education. And I didn't know until seven years ago when we got together because it was always in my head, like, okay, you either go to college, you go in the military and there, or you're homeless basically. Yep. And I never knew there was something else. And I was already four years into college at that point. (laughs) So, well, and like, I loved it. I, I love my degree. I'm glad I did it at the same time. Like I just will never tell my children, like, you got to go to college. You got to like, that's not a conversation we'll have. We'll have a conversation about what they like and then how we can, how we can, and then we'll talk about return on investment because at the end of the day, great. You went to college and you have a BA in Greek history. I'm sorry. There's not a return on investment for that. If you're not getting a PhD and you're not going to teach Greek history. Right. There's my, I like, I use now uh, I graduated in 2016. It's 2022. So now I use the degree, my uh, bachelor's that I earned um, in my day-to-day work before where I work right now. No, not even like a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you, and you learn other skill, like you learn skills, right? Yeah. Um, but, but I feel like you can learn those in other ways. You have to be conscious about it, but I don't know. I feel like there's so much pressure on people who like, especially I felt this when I was young to like, know what you want to do. And, mm-hmm. and you, if you're not the, in the States 30 under 30 list, you're a failure. Like, no, you have so much time, take your time, figure it out, work really hard. Once you decide what you want to do and just like, you can't wait to live until a certain accomplishment. You just have to learn to live along the way because your life is happening in all of those moments. Well, and I feel like so much pressure is put on you. Like before you reach certain milestones, right? Before you graduate from high school, before you graduate from college, before you turn 25, before you turn 30. Um, I don't know if there's anyone after you turn 30, cause I haven't heard about any, I haven't turned 30 yet. So, but I feel like there's all these like pressure, to, like do certain things before you hit certain milestones, especially maybe this is a little bit sexist, but especially like as women, like we're told like, Oh, you have to have kids while you're in your twenties, or you have to have kids before you turn 35, or you have to be married before you turn 30. Right. Otherwise you're too old to start a family or whatever it is. Um, yes, I agree. Yeah. I just want to take all those, all those timelines, just crumple them up. And then we're not even going to throw them in the trash. We're going to light them on fire. 
because they're stupid. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like you live the way you want to live, do the goals that you want to do, change your mind, be wrong, figure it out and don't stress (laughs) these like arbitrary milestones because they're arbitrary. I am third. Wait, how old am I? I'm 31. Um, and at this point, like, I don't feel like there's any milestones, but I'm also like looking back. I'm like, what was the rush? Yeah. As I'm like, as I inch closer to like my 30 year milestone and what's beyond, I'm like, okay. I really thought that like hitting my mid twenties, I would all of a sudden feel different or my late twenties, I'd feel different or feel older, like whatever. And like, I have a couple of friends who were in their early twenties. One of my coworkers the other day, he just turned 26. It was his 26th birthday. He goes, yeah, I'm like getting old. I was like, bro, I turn 30 next year. And he goes, Oh, like kind of, (laughs) and it was really funny, but like, it was, I'm like, I don't, I don't feel old. I feel really good. And like, um, something else that no one ever tells you is that the confidence you get in your late twenties, I'm like, I look at myself and I'm like, physically, like I look different than I did 10 years ago, right. When I was 18 or 19, I'm like, man, 18 or 19 or 20 year old me would kill for the self-confidence I have right now. Commiserate homicide for it. Same, (laughs) same. Like if I could have like started my business with the same mindset and confidence and attitude that I have now, what of a difference that would make. So if you are younger and you're struggling, maybe that's where you can focus is that mindset and confidence piece, because at the end of the day, that's going to be what takes you where you want to go. Yeah. It, it's so hard to like say, Oh, just focus on yourself. It'll all come. It's true though. Like looking back, I'm like, the moments where I did like focus on myself and bettering myself and investing in my education, like outside of school and expanding my knowledge base and just working really hard on myself, like the rewards have really come in. Oh, for sure. And like, I feel like the, the, I don't even know if it was like a moment or a, probably like a overtime decision, not decision, but just like realization of like, I trust myself, which sounds bizarre, but like, I trust my gut instincts. I trust like that. I'm going to make choices that are value aligned. You know, they might be, (laughs) they might turn into mistakes, but that's not because I didn't do my best at the time. Right. Um, and so if you can just gut check every now and then, like, does this feel value aligned? Mm -hmm. Does this feel like the right thing for me? Like Mm -hmm. you don't, you don't need external approval Mm -hmm. for decisions that you're making for your life. They need to be right for you and everybody else can just be quiet. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, it, it's really hard being no, like, being confident that you are making the decisions. Kaya and I were talking about that actually back in December, she did an episode with me and we were talking about, um, just like 
taking the baby steps so that you can trust yourself. And we were talking about it specifically with like exercise and like starting to get into a healthier mindset. She was like, just make sure you show up for yourself when you say you will, and then you'll start trusting yourself. But I feel like that is so applicable to other parts of life. It's not just, oh, getting in better shape or eating better, whatever. It's everything. Oh yeah. Well, and something I like to tell my clients is if they're struggling to know, you know, if, if either their goal is right, or like a, a, a stepping stone on their action plan is the right stepping stone. I'm like, listen, it, it might be something that needs pivoted later. That doesn't matter. At this point, you have a lifetime of proof, a lifetime of proof that you, A, make good choices, B, are a good human, C, um, have integrity, and D, have good values that you follow. You have a lifetime of proof. So you can trust yourself to make decisions going forward that are going to impact your life. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to connect with me on social media. It's at Ranch Collective Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes as soon as they're released. See you next week.